Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wealth Tech Show, CityWise show a podcast, even dedicated entirely to the trends in wealth management technology that are changing the way we invest and do personal finance. Now, today we've got a slightly different episode as Misha Glenny, uh, award winning journalist and broadcaster, is joining me. And we're going to talk about cybersecurity and the threats that we need to be aware of in this sector. So, Misha has just been at our wealth manager retreat, of course, in Hertfordshire and has given a fantastic presentation. Uh, so Misha, thank you for joining me, firstly. It's honestly great to have you involved with this. You're welcome, Ian. And, and you've just spoken to a room of, of wealth managers, and I wanna go back to a question I asked you on the stage, which is, um, you know, wealth management as a sector, obviously is a lucrative target for cyber criminals. Do you think that it's vulnerable? Do you think wealth managers really are aware of the cyber threats that are out there? And do you think there's a threat we might be hacked at some point? Well, I can only talk uh, from my experience of speaking to people who were in cyber defenses in banks around the world, in particular in the United States and the United Kingdom, because one of the things that has tended to happen, this is going to change, is that when people have been breached, they keep quiet about it because of the risk of reputational damage. And that is particularly acute uh, in the financial sector. So on the whole, the financial sector is now much better equipped, certainly than it was, and it's usually better equipped in terms of a digital hygiene regime than uh, most other sectors. Uh, I'd say the big exception is pharmaceuticals, which have traditionally had very, very good cybersecurity. The thing is, is that if you breach someone in the financial sector, uh, you can make a lot of money as a cyber criminal. And so the attacks are constant and varied from all sorts of places. Um, the financial sector tends to get more help from operations like GCHQ, Britain's Digital Spy Agency, and the NSA in the US than other sectors because its, uh, uh, its functioning is so vital to uh, society. But yes, there are big problems um, with the legacy of, uh, of internet infrastructure, old systems. National Westminster, for example, for a long time suffered from uh, a very archaic um, uh, network system, and they've been trying to update that incrementally. But it's very difficult when the basics are the basics are wrong. Just a quick example on that, Huawei, which <clears throat> we were thinking of investing in, 35% of our 5G networks. One of the reasons why it's so difficult not to go with Huawei for that 35%, which we now won't, is because Huawei built up the original infrastructure of other layers of our 4G and 3G uh, networks. And so if you decide to change anything with your infrastructure, it's incredibly expensive and time consuming. Mm -hmm. I can imagine. And yet the, the easy fix probably isn't the best one, as people find to their <laughs> expense quite commonly. Uh, so if you were a, a consultant going into a typical you know, wealth management or even a, a larger financial advice business, what, what do you think, because obviously you can't speak for every firm here, but what do you think are the first things you would do to protect them against any cyber risks? Well, first of all, I would uh, give a little quiz to the board. The key thing here is the board of any organization. The CEO has to be across uh, cybersecurity because what companies have to understand and which they're beginning to do 
is, is that cybersecurity is absolutely central to all operations. So uh, if the board shows that it is weak on a basic understanding of cybersecurity, then that is the first red flag. Then I will uh, ask people, how often do comms, does the finance department, does risk management, uh, does information security actually get together and talk to each other and understand how they're integrated? Because in particular, risk management and communications are really important. If you have a breach, and most companies are breached at some point, you have to know how to respond to the media, to fixing your systems, to answering to the government who are now going to want to know why your system was, was breached. So if comms are not involved in that, then you're likely to sustain yet more reputational damage. Risk management has to lay out what the consequences of a successful uh, breach would be. And information security has to be honest with the finance department about how much money they need to keep this thing going. And then you have to have someone who is able to relate that to the board in a language that the board understands and can act upon. Yeah, I, I think that's such a key thing. And actually with this podcast, we speak to so many tech experts who are great at explaining tech in in jargon, in long words, but the actual reality of what these things mean is, is often often missing. And uh, you know, something else I'd like to explore that you mentioned when you were on the stage just now, which was you were saying that for anything sensitive, you're using browsers like you know DuckDuckGo, uh, you're using uh, Tor as a, as a browser, as a um, you know as a, as a browser. Is that something that could be used commercially, or is that a bit a bit, a bit too yeah, much? I, I, I tell you why it's a bit too much. You're always looking at the, the balance between convenience and security. You know, this is an age-old dilemma. It's just particularly acute in the in the cyber age because if I, so, I don't just use a Tor browser. I use a VPN, a virtual private network, and what that does is it slows down responses. You know, so I have to sit there and wait. Particularly if I'm, uh, as I do quite frequently, if I'm exploring the dark net uh, on a Tor browser. It takes a long time, it's slow, it's a pain. So you have to know exactly what you're doing. So I only use that complex system if I'm looking at something that's sensitive. If it's not sensitive, I'll just go through the, the uh, usual routes. So no, on a, you know, on a quotidian level, it is impractical yeah. <laughs> to use that, yeah. level, that level of security. Um, Nonetheless, most corporations now, you know, take their security very seriously and it'll take you a long time before you can actually access the network, which is a very positive step. Yeah. Uh, I have to say from previous experience years ago, the last time I used the Onion browser, it was painfully slow. I don't know if it still is, but it was it was not something I think you could it's, use. It's, imp it's improved, but you really do want to use it with a VPN to sort of double your double your security. And it is... It's it's slow, you know, and it's not something I use for fun. <laughs> no, and, and yeah, again, that, that very much matches to my experience of it too. <laughs> and uh, looking at what you've learned about cybersecurity and, and hacking and online crime, has that impacted the way that you look after your own money? Because, you know, some of the trends that we talk about on the podcast we, are things like, you know, online banking or open banking even. You know, the idea that all this information could be shared in one place. Is, is that something that, that you think is, is actually not such a good idea? 
Well, I don't really have enough money to be too worried about it. As long as I know that should, because I know from the security practices that I follow, that I will not be fished. Um, but that's because I've spent 10 years writing about fishing. And so, you know, I can, I can smell one a mile off. Um, uh, I may be hacked. Um, in that case, I can do nothing about it. Um, but if I am hacked, I make sure that my money is distributed in such a way that the bank will compensate me if it gets stolen. So I, I spread money around different accounts so that it's not. And you find out about business accounts. You have uh, the banks have much lower liability on business accounts than they do on personal accounts. So be careful about using business accounts. That's really all you can do is to kind of manage it within the existing framework because you can't do without this uh, digital digital technology. Um, fintech operations, in my experience, tend to have, they tend to be a bit smaller, but they have better security because they've entered the market fully aware that security is a central issue. And so they've built it up into their they built it into their platform. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it definitely seems like the, uh, the you know, later entrance to the market do have that that advantage. Another thing to, to delve into, and I, I talk about this uh, fairly often on the podcast, despite, as I often say, I'm no expert in it, but cryptocurrency, as you saw at the start of our event today, I polled our audience. There must be over 100 wealth managers in the room here today and asked them what their big concern was over crypto. And I did that because at our previous event, most said that they aren't likely to ever include it in client portfolios. So I'd like to get your view on, you know, crypto, is it, is it something that actually is going to become part of uh, legitimate, you know, investing on behalf of client business? And beyond that as well, I mean, decentralized finance. Is decentralizing finance a good way to escape the clutches of international power grabs, or is it actually quite the opposite? Well, uh, on the first question on cryptocurrency... Yeah, those are two big questions, which, right? Yeah, I should no, really have they are. Very, the, <laughs> yeah, cryptocurrency is a very, the cryptocurrency yeah. is a very uh, interesting question. So, uh, and the jury's out. We don't know which way it's going to go. There have been some big signs that Bitcoin is going to be throttled, or at least that states are going to want to throttle it. Above all else, China's decision to make any holdings of Bitcoins illegal, any mining of Bitcoins illegal. It's worth bearing in mind that Bitcoin mining accounts for 1% of all global energy consumption. Now, that is an incredibly inefficient and polluting way of going about uh, of financial business. And that's just Bitcoin. However, El Salvador has now made it an official currency. What we're seeing in the developing world, particularly in Africa, is a lot of people using Bitcoin because they find it, they f find it more secure, not in terms of its value, but in terms of your ability to exchange it and less vulnerable to being, to being hacked, which is not to say that Bitcoin isn't hacked because it is, it is hacked a lot. Initially, Bitcoin was either bought by sort of nerdy futurists or it was bought by criminals because it's, it's origins, at its origins, it soon, um, we were talking a little earlier about Silk Road, Silk Road 2. Um, Bitcoin is what really turned Silk Road 2 into a big, big dark net website selling all sorts of uh, dodgy, uh, dodgy things. Since then, 
since about 2017, Bitcoin has become a pure speculative Ponzi scheme. That's basically what it is. Yet some big financial institutions are hedging with it. Some of them are investing in it. The, um, uh, the Securities Exchange Commission is toying with the idea of letting some coins in, some not. So there hasn't been a decision about what type of regulation you're going to see. And if enough countries decide that actually Bitcoin can be used or other digital currencies, um, uh, then uh, you could still see this as an alternative to fiat currencies. But my ultimate feeling is, is that central banks are not going to tolerate this um, and regulation will be coming down the, down the road. In the meanwhile, people should remember it's a Ponzi scheme. It's really interesting. I've had, I've had three different guests talk about crypto and everyone has given me a different take. Yeah, right. and, uh, the yeah. one thing I'll say, though, it may be a Ponzi scheme, but about six years ago, I bought one for $200 <laughs> and it's now worth 61000 Yeah, you were, say, you were saying you had no need for online banking, Michel. <laughs> no, good on you. Um, so, I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? And to the other question, of course, decentralized finance. I mean, we were talking, well, you were talking earlier about the political battles that you have with hacking and cybersecurity and, and, and how that has played out between Russia and the US and China and, and in the EU as well. You know, having a decentralized economy, does that help you to potentially escape those uh, threats? Or, or is it actually more the case that someone could take advantage of decentralized finance? No, I think decentralized finance is probably a good idea because you're spreading risk, essentially, is what you're, what you're doing. I have to say that on, on finance, uh, when it comes to financial institutions, if you're under attack, it's almost always from criminal groups because uh, neither Beijing, nor Moscow, nor Washington, nor Brussels have any real interest in seeing um, uh, a crippling of any part of the global financial system. And, <clears throat> you know, it was, uh, I mentioned in, in my talk about Colonial Pipeline, um, which was an opportunistic attack by a criminal group on uh, the pipeline which controls 45% of the East Coast uh, oil distribution in the United States. And, <clears throat> It was by chance that this group, Darkside, had hit part of America's critical national infrastructure. So as I understand it, the Americans got on the phone to Moscow straight away and said, close these bastards down. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the Russians appear to have done that very quickly because I think states will only go for critical national infrastructure attacks if we are moving close to a state of to a state of war. So if uh, finance is being hit, then it'll be being hit from criminal groups. And decentralization in that way reduces the value of the attack to the criminal group. So probably a good thing. But I, again, like many of these things, uh, early doors, as they say. Yeah, absolutely. And, and funny enough, I was going to ask where, um, where the UK sits in this, because we're at an interesting moment in time for, for the UK, aren't we, really? We've, at one point, the UK is, is something of a fintech hub. I mean, globally, it's in a good position for fintech. Uh, and separately, having left the EU, there's potentially some political maneuverability 
there, you could argue. Um, is that a good thing? Do you think that stands us in good stead? Well, I think in, in terms of its geopolitical impact, uh, Brexit has reduced it um, in terms of geopolitics. Uh, Britain does, however, have something that no one else except the Americans, the Russians and Chinese have, and that is GCHQ. Um, and so our digital capability punches way above our geopolitical uh, standing, and that unquestionably gives the UK an advantage. And as you rightly say, London is a, is a fintech hub, and fintech is less susceptible to issues related to uh, European Union, British relations, American-British relations, and so on, uh, than uh, the, uh, the, the larger corporations. So on the whole, the emphasis on, uh, on digital technology and developing both in finance and in other sectors, uh, London in particular, but also, you know, there are places like Newcastle and Manchester, which are also very interesting in terms of uh, tech. Uh, that is an absolutely essential route for any post-Brexit government to go down. Mm -hmm. and, and do you think there's still a uh, significant, well, I assume collaboration with the EU is still important. Oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Uh, no, it's absolutely, it's absolutely central. I mean, you know, Britain, Britain has taken a big chance with Brexit and it needs to find a way of collaborating with the, with the European Union. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's fine if you want to leave the European Union, but antagonizing the European Union when you're in a relationship of competition with the European Union is a pretty risky strategy. It may just be a short-term strategy at the moment to overcome the immediate uh, shock of it, but uh, you've got to be careful. Mm -hmm. And one, one other thing completely unrelated to the, the politics, which is this post-pandemic working world where people are working from home. Now, I'll, I'll be completely honest, I, I love the fact that there's now more flexibility in working patterns, but what it does mean is that you've got offices of people that are no longer in the same place at the same time. Uh, and I assume that is a, a threat for cybersecurity. So do you, do you think that's actually a case for people going back to working in the same place? Or do you just think there's things we need to do to make sure that we can make our systems more secure? Uh, well, I think the argument for people going back to work in offices is a, a slightly different one because I think it just basically improves the performance of your company if people are engaging with, you, with each other face to face. You can do it over technology, but it is not as effective and it does uh, uh, widen the so-called attack surface. Um, so it makes you more vulnerable. Uh, equally important with that is the nature of digital transformation and who you put your trust in to manage your networks externally, because that is what's been accelerating under the pandemic as much as home working is digital transformation. You've got some corporations who have packed five years work into 18 months and that's great for efficiency. Don't get me wrong, digital transformation is the way that you've got to go. But you've got to be really careful about who your cloud providers are, who your third party suppliers are. And this is why that issue we talked about earlier about the board is really 
really important. Digital transformation requires constant vigilance. Mm -hmm. And if there was one takeaway for our listeners, what would, would that be it? That would be it. That would be it. You can't do without digital transformation, um, but you have to be very, very vigilant about it. Okay, Misha, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a very fun episode of the Wealth Tech Show. Great to have you on. Uh, and thank you for joining us at The Grove as well. Absolute pleasure. Uh, thanks also to everyone listening in. I've been Ian Horn, and this has been The Wealth Tech Show. Mm -hmm.